Good morning. I want to uh, thank all of you for praying. Please don't stop. I uh, have to tell you that I am profoundly sobered by this opportunity, this responsibility, really the uh, the privilege of loving this body from this position. I, uh, uh, if I weren't convinced uh, that God was leading in it, if I wasn't convinced of God's sufficient grace, I could not accept this position. And this is his church, and he will continue to lead it. I depend on that. We count on that. I have uh, basically three priorities for myself in this position. One is for me to pursue God, because without his filling, I have absolutely nothing to offer. The second priority is to ensure that you keep being fed from God's Word. There's a lot of things that go into ministry, but feeding on God's Word is foundational. Everything else is secondary. It's God's Word that lasts. It's uh, uh, through His Word that He corrects us and leads us. He uses His Word to, to make us spiritually healthy, mature. It's the truth of God's Word that sets us free to be everything He has for us to be. So that is my primary responsibility. My primary priority is to ensure that you continue to feed from His Word. And my third priority is to serve and enable the pastoral staff here as they equip you to do the work of the ministry. You are the ministers of this church. As you are equipped with the biblical principles of ministry... God will use this church to accomplish our mission, our ministry of of making Jesus Christ known. So my job is to help, encourage, and lead the staff as they free you and equip you to minister. Again, as that happens, this church is going to have a profound impact on the lives and the families and the the neighborhoods, the, the businesses, the community structures throughout this valley and this state. Uh, around the world, really. God will be glorified. Our Lord Jesus will be glorified. And that's our greatest desire. So as I pursue these priorities, I do ask that you continue to pray that God would accomplish these things through us. Let's get into uh, His Word. That's our priority. This is where He speaks. We've been studying through the Gospel of Luke. As you know, the first couple of chapters, uh, Luke takes us back and forth between uh, uh, the stories of Jesus and John. Can you guys hear me all right? I don't know if... I'm not hearing myself. Maybe I... uh, There. Is that that better? It's not better. Okay. (laughs) Live with it then. Sorry. (laughs) That's all I can do. I'll just... Excuse me. I'll try to, to, to speak louder. More loudly. Anyway, in our passage here this morning, the two of them meet and Jesus moves into the center stage. Uh, We're going to be looking at all of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a summary of John's entire, John the Baptist's entire ministry. And again, then the attention moves to Jesus. Let's start with just the first two verses, the historic context. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, 
Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea, Trachonitis, and Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, like Luke always does, he starts by giving power. But as he does that, he kind of shows us what chaos this part of the world was in at the time. The uh, huge uh, region that Herod the Great had ruled had disintegrated, had fragmented into at least four sections. And the, uh, the, 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 the section of Judea itself had been so badly governed that the Romans stepped in, put their own man, Pontius Pilate, in charge, trying to get things back under control, things to settle down, move in the right track. This was a a time of political, religious uh, fragmentation. Uh, Luke tells us that Annas and Caiaphas were the high priest. See, by Jewish law, there could only be one high priest. What had happened was Annas was the high priest, and he and Pilate didn't get along, so Pilate deposed him and set Caiaphas up as high priest. So Caiaphas is now officially the high priest, but most of the uh, religious Jews did not recognize or acknowledge uh, Pilate's authority to do this, so they continued to recognize Annas as high priest. See, things were a mess. Rome the last of the four great empires that Daniel had prophesied would dominate Israel, the one during which the Messiah would come. Rome was now directly governing Judah. The religious institutions were in disarray. From the perspective of a Jew, things were just about as bad as they could get. And at that time, the time prophesied by Daniel, the word of the Lord came to John. This wasn't John's initiative. Uh, somehow God came to John while he was living out in the desert, you know, living contentedly away from the whole mess. God said, it's time. So John began his ministry. Verse 18, we're told that John's ministry was preaching the gospel, the good news. But let's take a look at how he did that. Starting in verse 3. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book, the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So John preached the good news by preaching a uh, baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And this was a fulfillment of a prophecy in Isaiah. That someone would be sent to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. Now that all sounds good. John was preparing the way for Jesus. He wasn't building literal roads or leveling mountains. He was preparing the way spiritually. And he was doing that by preaching a baptism of repentance. Again, that sounds nice. That sounds pleasant. Let's uh, listen to what it was really like. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourself, 
We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, the man who has two tunics should share them with one who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money, don't accuse people falsely, be content with your pay. People were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come. The thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news, the gospel to them. But when John rebuked Herod, the Tetrarch, because of Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. These people come out to be baptized, and John says, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath that is to come? Now, this guy could have used a Dale Carnegie course. This is not the way you win friends and influence people. You know, what happened to the nice-sounding gospel? I thought he was preaching good news. How is blasting these people and laying the law on them good news? How is this gospel? But you see, this is the true gospel. Sadly, we often lose sight of it. Let me explain. The gospel basically consists of four steps. The first is recognizing, realizing that you are a sinner. It's not just admitting and recognizing that you sin now and then, but realizing that at your core, at your root, you are a sinner. And your, your sins are merely a manifestation of that. Having realized that comes the second step. Recognizing that you are helpless, hopeless, unable to do anything about changing that yourself. You can't change your very nature. That leads to the third step of calling out to God. Of saying, God, I've got no other hope. I've got nowhere else to turn. I need saving. Appealing to God. And that leads to the fourth glorious step. When we recognize our need, when we call out to God from the midst of despair, nowhere else to turn, when we are acutely and overwhelmingly aware of our need for a Savior, God sends a Savior. Jesus Christ walks into our lives, transforms them. You see, John, John's ministry was that of preparing the way. Preparing the way for that fourth step where Jesus walks in. And so he's taking people through the first three. He's showing them their sin. He's showing them their helplessness. He's calling them to turn and appeal to God. 
And you see, John uses the law to do this. He lays the law on them because that's exactly what the law is for. It's to prepare people for Christ. Paul refers to the law as our tutor, to lead us, to to bring us to Christ. See, as we face God's uh, demands and our inability in the face of those demands, we are forced to either rebel, try to justify ourselves, or submit and let God save us. John's job was to get them to face their need, to get them ready for the real answer. John's mission was to get them ready for Jesus. So that's what he's doing. Now let's uh, take a look at, at how he does this. See, John was a leveler. That was his mission. But he wasn't leveling mountains and valleys, literally. He was leveling people. Getting everyone down to one common plane. A recognition of their sin, their sinfulness, a recognition of their need. His baptism didn't give them forgiveness. His baptism was an appeal to God from the midst of their their need for God to forgive them. That's what baptism is. It's an appeal to God. And like I said... uh, as people came in, he addressed them as vipers. When uh, Paul and Luke were on the island of Malta, they'd been shipwrecked. And Paul was gathering up some brush to put on the fire that everybody was gathered around trying to dry off and get warm. And as he put the brush on the fire, the heat of the fire flushed out a viper. And it latched onto his hand and it bit him. God used that to get the islanders' attention. When Paul didn't die, they said, there must be something special about this guy. And so they listened to the gospel. The point I want to make is that vipers are hiders. They hide in brush. They hide in things. They hide under things. And when anybody gets too close, they inject their venom. They're filled with poison. John is challenging the hiders. People who aren't honest with God. You see, John is is challenging the people who uh, may hide in religion. These are very religious people, but their religion is just a place to hide. These are the same people that Jesus called a brood of vipers. John says, who flushed you out? You've been hiding in one religion, and now you're running trying to find a new place to hide. But your heart is still filled with poison. Nothing has really changed. They were just coming to John to find a new place to hide. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people come to church looking for a place to hide. A good Christian front is a great camouflage. Unfortunately, this is often all too easy a place to hide. Maybe people don't even know it themselves. They're fooling themselves. They're saying, you know, God loves me. I'm okay. But there's something wrong. The heart is still filled with poison. So John says, uh, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There's something wrong in their lives. They look good in church. 
but at home they're they're harsh with their children and unloving to their spouses at work they're dishonest and untrustworthy or ruthless so john says let's stop here let's let's take a reality check is there reality in your lives are, are you really trying to pull something over on god where is the fruit in your private life and then he says don't say in your heart that we have abraham as our father God can raise up from these stones children for Abraham. For Abraham, See, the Jews of Jesus' day were convinced that just because they were called Jews, uh, children, descendants of Abraham, everything was okay. The rabbis of that day uh, believed and taught that Abraham was the key to everything. In fact, some of their writings, they say that the reason Moses was not destroyed when he argued with God was because he's a descendant of Abraham. The reason God listened to Daniel was because he was a descendant of Abraham. They even argued that that, that Jews would be safe on the seas because they're descendants of Abraham. In the Midrash, there's one passage that is figuratively speaking directly to Abraham. And it says, Even if your children were morally dead, lifeless, without blood vessels or bones, your merit would be enough for them. See, they taught that Abraham stood at the doors, the gates of hell, to rescue all of his descendants. They thought just because they were called Jews, they were in. Now, most people today would not be so uh, uh, extravagant as the, uh, the Midrash. But how many today who call themselves Christians think by just that? Therein, that, that that is is all that it takes. But John says, if you profess to be people of God, there should be evidence. There should be fruit in your lives. The lack of fruit belies the premise. And then John says something in verse 9 that I think is the key to our whole understanding of this passage. John says, the axe is already laid at the root. You know, with all this uh, talking about fruit, I think it would be very easy to misunderstand the point. Be easy for us to become confused to, and think that John is telling these people to change their behavior. You know, you're, you call yourself a Christian, so act like one. That That's sounds like what he's trying to say but it isn't that is the wrong message now listen to this carefully because it's important john doesn't say that the axe is laid at the fruit he's not telling them to to change their behavior he says the axe is laid at the root See, he's going far deeper than this. He's not telling them to change their behavior. You can cut off all the fruit you want off a bad tree. And it's not going to change the tree. All that's going to happen is more bad fruit is going to grow. Maybe different bad fruit, but it's still going to be bad fruit. In fact, if all you try to do is to make yourself a little more religious, you know, pray more, get drunk less, come to church more, don't lie so much. If, if that becomes your goal, then the fruit that replaces the bad fruit you're cutting off 
will be far worse than the fruit that you cut off. The, the, the religious type of bad fruit, the hypocrisy, the, the, the self-contented judgmentalism, the, 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 the religious face that we put on is the worst kind of bad fruit that there is. Jesus had his strongest words for people who acted that way. See, because we can't just change the fruit. It doesn't work to just try to change your behavior. The problem isn't with the fruit. The problem is the root. The root produces the bad fruit. The axe needs to be laid at the root. See, the truth is that people are not sinners because they sin. They sin because they are sinners. And that's an important distinction. Let me rephrase that in in the formula that I was taught. Man is not a sinner because he sins. Man sins because he is a sinner. See, it's not the fruit that makes the root bad. It's the root that makes the fruit bad. It's not the behavior that makes us a sinner. It's the fact that we are sinners that produces the behavior. And that's the starting place of understanding what's really going on in our lives. Our roots are bad. The Bible teaches that our roots are in Adam. Those are bad roots. That's why Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be completely Reborn. It's not enough just to try harder. The old tree needs to be chopped down so a new tree can grow. I know this is uh, heavy stuff, but it is important. Remember, John was preparing the way for Jesus. He was spiritually getting them ready for the Savior. And they needed to see how clearly they needed a Savior, that there was something profoundly wrong in them. It was not just a superficial change. He wanted them to face themselves honestly so that they would repent. Repentance means agreeing with God against ourselves. Until we do that, until we look at ourselves and recognize that the problem isn't just the behavior, that the need goes deeper, then we're not ready for Jesus. And John's goal, John's job, was to get them ready for Jesus. Well, the people ask, what should we do? So he tells them. He says, bear some fruit of repentance. Now, here's some balance here. When we truly repent, it changes us. It gets rid of our superiority complex, our, our, our rationalization that, that justifies the way that we use others. When I was in high school, I was in a program called Scared Straight. And what they did is they took a bunch of us students down to San Quentin and had us talk to the inmates there. The idea was to show us the consequences of bad thinking. And I remember one guy there who talked about how he viewed his robbery victims. He would tell himself that these people were rich and they had probably cheated someone to get the money, so he deserved the money just as much as they did. See, that's bad thinking. 
But it's exactly the kind of bad thinking we all do. When I am treating my wife irritably, it's after kind of working it out in my mind how she deserves to be treated that way. Or I deserve the freedom to act that way. When someone cheats on their taxes, it's usually after figuring out how bad the IRS is or the federal government. But when we face ourselves and realize that we are sinners, not just that we sin here and there, but that we in our core are sinners and are, vir- are capable of virtually any kind of sin. That brings us back to reality. And we've got to face that we are no better and others are no worse. And we can therefore no longer justify our sinful behavior against them. What's more, in the effort to obey John's instructions, the law that he laid on them, these people would have to face their inadequacy. They'd have to realize they couldn't do it. As as we try to love our wives as Christ loves the church, or or, or as you try to submit to your husband in a healthy way, or we try to, to place others' needs above our own, we are confronted with our inadequacy, our selfishness, our inability to escape our self-justifying excuses and obey without some radical change in us. And then John points them to Jesus, the one who is coming, the one whose sandal he's not worthy to unleash, the one who will separate the wheat from the chaff, who will baptize them in the Holy Spirit if they respond or with fire if they rebel. See, Jesus really is the dividing point. He is the one that separates the wheat from the chaff. People will either respond to Him from their need or they will continue to hide, pretend, refuse to face their need, to refuse to face the fact that they need a radical repentance. See, Herod was an example of the latter. Herod used to love to hear John teach until John started getting into Herod's stuff, started pointing out the bad fruit in Herod's life, how he had taken his brother's wife, who was also his niece, to be his wife. And then Herod got mad and he put John in prison. You know, unfortunately, that's how most people respond. They, they hate the people who love them enough to speak the truth to them. They go on telling themselves that, that God's pleased with me. I'm okay with God. It's just these uptight religious people who are trying to lay their trip on me. And they go on bearing bad fruit, divorcing their spouses or cheating on their taxes or ignoring the needs of the people around them. You see, when we refuse to take God's side against ourselves, rather than the, 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 the freedom of forgiveness, rather than the rebirth of the Holy Spirit, comes the fire of resistance and it burns our lives. Justifying ourselves, we will sacrifice everything else. 
or marriage or children, anything that gets in the way. John's mission was to help these people see that God wasn't pleased with them. But there was one with whom God is pleased. Verse 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. See, the Savior had come. This is the culmination of John's gospel. Jesus walked onto the scene. As Paul said to Timothy, Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. See, Jesus came to where John was baptizing, and he was baptized right along with the sinners. You know, possibly uh, the fact that John was out there baptizing was Jesus' clue. John was out there preparing the way. That may have been Jesus' signal from God to begin his ministry. And he begins his ministry by identifying with sinners. That identification culminated on the cross, where he took our sins. He became sin for us so that we could find life in him. This baptism is, is the first step on the road to the cross. We're told that even before he began his formal ministry, the Father was pleased with him. I realize that's not before Jesus had done anything. Jesus was already 30 years old. Let me read a verse from Proverbs to you. Proverbs 3, 4. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. See, in Luke 2, 52, the end of the last chapter, we're told that Jesus was growing in favor with God and man. For 30 years, he had been loving people. He had been faithful, submitting to his parents, honoring them, loving the people around him. And it's important that you understand that this is not wasted time. This was exactly God's call. See, that's the key to your impact as well. If you want to do great things for God, don't run out and start trying to do great things. Love your family. Submit to authority. Be faithful. Love the people around you. That is the essential starting place. As you do, God will open other faithful ministry as well. Pleasure is only in Jesus. He is the only one that always loved. He's the only one that was always faithful. He's the only one whose roots were good. The only place we can find God's pleasure is in Him. Now the chapter ends with uh, the listing of Jesus' genealogy. Um, Luke starts by saying, Jesus Himself was about 30 years old when He began His ministry. And then then, then Luke goes on 
to uh, show how Jesus' roots could be traced all the way back through Adam to God. Now, we don't even have time to read this genealogy. I wish I had uh, planned a whole Sunday just to look at at, at the genealogy because there's so much there. Let me try to just give you a, a couple of highlights. Basically, Luke had four purposes in writing this genealogy. First was just to give us the facts. That's what Luke does all the way through this book, is gives us the facts. Second, he wants to show Jesus' connection with all of mankind. He goes all the way back to Adam to show that Jesus came not just for the Jews, but for all of the descendants of Adam, for all humanity. And third, Luke wanted to show the connection with all the promises of the Old Testament. God made covenants with several people in the Old Testament, promising them that one of their descendants would be the Savior. That's the promise he made to Adam and Eve, that one of their seed, one of their descendants would be the Lord, the Savior. In Genesis 10, God narrows that promise, showing that that, that, that it would be through Noah's son, Shem, that the, the promised one would be a Semite. Genesis 12 God promises Abraham that through one of his descendants, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And that promise is repeated to Isaac and and to Jacob and through Jacob to Judah. And, and, And I think Luke's point is to show us that Jesus is the one that was promised to all of them. He is the descendant from their line. Jesus is the promise of the Old Testament. But I think the primary purpose that uh, Luke has in giving us this genealogy is to show us that Jesus is a descendant of David. Now, by Jesus' time, people were aware that the Messiah would be a descendant of David, a king of the line of David. That was the prophecy of uh, of the Old Testament, of the, of the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It's in 2 Samuel uh, 7. There's a promise of this. So they knew that the... that uh, the Messiah would be a descendant of David. And I think this is, is fascinating. In Matthew, we have another genealogy, different than this one. From, from David down, it's different. What Matthew does is shows us the, 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 the royal descent through David all the way to Joseph, Jesus' adopted father. See, adoption was just as good as birth when it came to ascension to the throne, to to becoming king. And as Joseph's oldest adopted son, Jesus, Matthew shows us, is the rightful king of Israel. But this genealogy that Luke gives us is different. There are different names. In fact, in in Matthew, Jacob is Joseph's father. Here it appears that Heli is Joseph's father. So something's going on. Well, what you have in the genealogy of Luke is actually Mary's genealogy. The Talmud, the commentary on the law that was written shortly after Jesus, Jesus is referred to as the illegitimate son of Mary, daughter of Heli. Heli is Mary's father. In both Roman and Jewish tradition, they left women's names out of genealogies. And what you have here is the parenthetical statement that Joseph was the supposed father of Jesus. And then the genealogy actually starts with Heli, skipping Mary, going straight to her father, Heli. 
What we have in the marriage of Mary and Joseph is the merging of these two royal lines. So that from both directions, from Mary's side and from Joseph's side, Jesus is the rightful King of the Jews. I think it's worth uh, noting that James, Jesus' next younger brother, was treated with deference by the Jews, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, because they knew, they kept track of lineage, of genealogy, and they knew that he was royalty, perhaps even the heir to the throne. See, Luke's purpose is for us to realize that Jesus is the heir of the promises. Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what Luke wants us to see clearly. Why? Well, because of all of the stuff we've been talking about. That our roots are bad. Our roots are in the sinfulness of Adam. Those roots need to be chopped off. So that by God's grace, we can be grafted into Christ and receive new roots, a new nature. I'm not a John the Baptist. I'm not going to stand up here and call you all a brood of vipers. But I also take seriously the uh, warning of one of my spiritual grandfathers. Harry Ironside said, if God is going to comfort men... They must first own their utter helplessness and sinfulness in themselves before Him. To bolster men up in their own self-righteousness by trying to make them believe they have ability in themselves whereby they can save their own souls is simply misleading men and those who so preach will be responsible for soul murder. See, I can't be responsible for that. I know that there are many people here who are hiding, who have never faced their sinfulness before God. Not just that they sin here and there, but the sinfulness at their root that produces their sins. And I know there are many others who have responded to the gospel, who are true Christians, who have still never faced their utter sinfulness before God and allowed that awareness to break them. These people often live unhealthy spiritual lives, kind of like a a premature birth, still trying to justify their sins. There's no joy. There's no freedom. There's no release. There's no power of forgiveness in their lives. They uh, started walking before they learned to crawl, and they've got to go back and face their sinfulness before God apart from His grace. And even for those of you who have faced it before. It refreshes the soul to remember. It prepares our heart anew for Christ when we recognize and realize that apart from Him, no good thing dwells in us. That we need Him desperately and it's His righteousness that is our only hope. It's only when you truly repent, when you allow God's Spirit to awake your conscience, you take God's side against yourself confessing, admitting that you are a sinner. Then, by His grace, He places you in Christ, and you have new roots. The Apostle John wrote, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become children of God, even to those who believe in His name, who are born not of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but are born of God. That becomes our roots. Let's pray.
I'd like to take just uh, about 30 seconds, not long, ask you to be quiet before God, to confess your sinfulness, not just your sins, but that you are a sinner, because Christ came to save sinners, that there is release, there is cleansing by His blood when we face ourselves honestly. Lord God, I uh, again acknowledge my sinfulness apart from you. That it is only in you that there's cleansing, that there is new life. Pray for each person here that they would not hide from that knowledge, but they would embrace that knowledge so that they could experience the release and the power of forgiveness in their lives. Pray for those here who've not yet given themselves to you, who still are afraid of that, that you would break through that, that they would recognize that uh, they are sinners and they desperately need saving. Pray for those who know you but have never faced their sinfulness and continue to struggle to justify themselves rather than being broken before you. Lord, break their heart. Your Spirit is in them. Use your Spirit to open their consciences to see themselves, to be crushed by that so that they can take full advantage of the new life that you give. Lord, make us constantly mindful of our need for you so that we can experience the joy of your love, the joy of your faithfulness. We just thank you for John's ministry, preparing hearts. We want our hearts prepared to fully embrace you. And we pray this in your name. Amen.